I'm Josh Allen Friedman with Tales of My Dead Heroes. This week we visit with the great Broadway composer, Cy Coleman. We've been dancing all night. The cocktail lounges of 1950s New York, where night-crawling sophisticates mingled in a film noir of double-dry martinis and jazz. In the first issue of Playboy in 1953, Hugh Hefner wrote his manifesto about having quiet discussions with a female acquaintance on Picasso, Nietzsche, jazz, and sex. That was the world of the Cy Coleman Trio. Cy Coleman even wrote Playboy's theme, and you can see him in one click on YouTube performing it for Hef and the Playmates in 1960. You can hear how the Odd Couple TV theme borrowed from Cy Coleman here. I've waited my entire life to have a quiet discussion on Picasso, Nietzsche, jazz, and sex with a young female acquaintance. Hasn't happened yet. I don't think even Cy Coleman ever had that conversation. Cy Coleman came to be one of Broadway's great composers as a jazz pianist first. He was a child prodigy who gave classical recitals at Carnegie Hall and Town Hall beginning at the age of six. That would have been in 1935. He left the classical music world at 17 to the chagrin of his stuffy piano teachers to form the Cy Coleman Trio. But his songs, like Witchcraft and The Best Is Yet to Come, written with Carolyn Lee, were becoming Sinatra hits. Watch him on YouTube debuting The Best Is Yet to Come on Playboy's Penthouse in 1959 with Lenny Bruce. He wrote the theme song to my father's movie, The Original Heartbreak Kid, but it was Broadway in its golden age that Cy Coleman aimed for. Coleman's first Broadway musical with his early partner, lyricist Carolyn Lee, was Wildcat in 1960. It was written for Lucille Ball's Broadway debut. The record I remember best several years before the Beatles was a hit called Hey, Look Me Over. Okay, I was five, and for some reason, I'd come alive in the car when this came over the radio. Little did I know that when I grew up, I'd be closing the lanes at 4 a.m. with this songwriter. Just me, Cy, and an empty bottle of whiskey. Here's Cy Coleman in his Upper East Side office, Notable Music, in 1997. Writing songs specifically for a personality who's not a singer, like Lucille Ball. No disrespect to her. No, of course. No, she no, she know it. Like, like, hey, look, Neil, you say it took six weeks to, write, to find it, to write it, because she didn't sing. Well, you know, when, when I first did it, it was my first show. And there was a writing for personality who was not necessarily a singer. Uh, personality, yes. The situation was an exultant one. But at the same time, everything I wrote sounded like Wombo Vassal Merman. But that opening number is generally hard, anyway, you know, how you open your show. But when I did it for her, I figured, number one, She's got a limited range. What kind of tempo can I find that'll be exciting for her? She was the, the biggest star in the country at the time when she came to do a Broadway show. And so people are going to be looking for her to, to what she's going to do. So that opening number was very important. And I was writing with Carol Lee at the time. And after six weeks, I remember, uh, and we were really sweating it out. We wrote the whole score except for this. And so finally, Carolyn said to me, what if it was just somebody who sang like Lucille Ball, and it wasn't Lucille Ball. And I sat at the piano, and I played half of the tune. I said, I'd write something as simple as this. 
We at that time we had developed a reputation for kind of sophisticated songs. We had witchcraft, the best is yet to come, when in Rome. Was, was witchcraft written for and all these not to pick that up uh, after? I was sent in by the publisher, and he picked it up. What publisher were you with then? Uh, e. H. Mars. I used to make demo records. We used to send them to to an artist, and they used to pick them up or not. But well, we didn't want to be known. This is our first show, or something simple as that. And she called me up and she had the lyric after it. And she said, remember, you know that silly little song you wrote to Jay? She said, well, here's the lyric. He said, hey, look me over, let me in the air, out of quote, I'll come over up to here. And we left. Then uh, we went into the publishers and we played them a lot of songs. And then Carolyn said, well, here's the beginning of a funny song, but we're not going to put it in. And we played him, hey, look me over. And of course, he recognized the commercial value of it. And he put, he said, you better finish that one. Now, when we first met Lucille Bowe, we played her the whole score, and at the end of it, we decided we'd play her, Eric Miller, and that was the first time she responded. She got up and she said, I can sing that. You gotta say, hey, look me over, let me in here, fresh out of clover, porkies up to here, but don't pass the So, we had constructed something that we, she, she was comfortable singing, it wasn't rangy, uh, it was, uh, uh, had some chromatics in there that it took a chance, but she, as long as she didn't know what they were, I remember one time she came and said, what key am I singing in? I could have said anything. If I just named anything, she said, oh, so if you don't tell them it's hard, it's not hard. I've always been fascinated by how professional songwriters sometimes tailor a song specifically for a personality who's not a singer, like Lucille Ball. Sid Caesar was the first to sing the standard Real Live Girl, also written for someone who wasn't a singer. It was Coleman's second Broadway show, and Neil Simon's second show, Little Me, in 1962. It also had the great Cy Coleman Carolyn Lee song, I've Got Your Number. Here's a few versions stitched together, including the original demo sung by Cy and his lyricist Carolyn Lee. I used to think of this song all the time in Times Square, amongst the live nude girls. Here's Sid Caesar. Pardon me, miss, but I've never done this with a real live girl. Carolyn Lee. off the farm with an actual armful of real live girls. Dino. Barry Manilow. I'm simply drowned in the sight and the sound and the scent and the feel of a real. Cy Coleman and Carolyn Lee on the original demo. I'll overlook everyone and the book for a real. Take your Venetian or Roman or Grecian ideal. I'll take one that's more usable. Cy Coleman wrote his greatest songs with two different female lyricists, Carolyn Lee and then Dorothy Fields. Carolyn Lee also co-wrote the Sinatra standard, Young at Heart, separate from Coleman. Real Live Girl was, was tailored towards Sid Caesar. Yes, it was. I've always thought that was a really boring song. It almost could have been in the life. Yeah. Well, you know that everything that Carolyn Lee wrote, she was a big woman, she was a big heavy woman, but everything that she wrote was very sexy, and she always written, she wrote it like she was a very sexy little nymph, and she acted through, through life, I mean, it was 
very sensual. The, um, all of her lyrics, you fascinate me so, and, uh, even witchcraft. They all had a great sexuality to them. In the late 50s, Coleman was offered a lifetime contract by Universal Pictures to move out to Hollywood and write music for movies. He turned that down, a decision that really took balls. He put all his faith in becoming a Broadway composer in New York. And that was before he even wrote his first Broadway show. Cary Grant was a fan and wanted Cy to write music for his upcoming 1964 movie with Leslie Caron, Father Goose. The theme song, thankfully, wasn't for Cary Grant to sing. And I had the same thing with Sid Season when we did Real Life Girl. Very limited range. And so I wrote a sweet little waltz for him. And with not much range. And um, after that, I, I wrote for Gwen Fern, who was more of a singer, but, you know, but a, a more um, a character singer. But I wrote a very complicated song for her. Not that she couldn't do it. Uh, where am I going? But, you know, everybody's amazed to find that it only has one octave range. It was done by Robert Streisand, and, but it only has one octave range. And uh, I think that when you're writing for somebody, you've got to know their limitations. In, in Farley Goose, there's no song sung by Cary Grant, is there? No, but there's a nice song, there's a nice story with that. Um, I was recording for Capitol Records at the time, and I had done an album, and the press agent somehow sent this album that I did with Billy May. <clears throat> she sent it over to Cary Grant. And Cary Grant, uh, somehow we listened to it and he heard some of my songs and there was a little biography in the back and he wanted to beat me. So I went over and had lunch with him at the commissary and uh, he said that he wanted, you know, going to use me for a picture one day. And I said, fine. And that would be wonderful. But, you know, that um, they, were, they hated bringing people from New York out to California. Number one, they hated paying in the per diem. And so I was brought out there. And the first thing they wanted me to do was write uh, a theme song. And we went out to, we had a very interesting and a, a strange luncheon at the commissary again. And Cary Grant was next to me. And he put his arm around me and he started singing all these kind of songs to help me out. You know, it's like, uh, I've got you know, all these kind of English musical kinds of things. He made me so nervous because everybody, they were all stars looking about Cary Grant having his arm around me and I ordered eggs. And somehow it made me so nervous that I couldn't eat. I mean, I had the eggs sort of between my mouth and the plate and I couldn't get them down or up. And so finally I got them down and I decided not to eat. <laughs> and he looked at it and he said, oh, you haven't finished your eggs. And he promptly finished them. And so he ate those eggs. And we walked out and I was stopped by one of my friends who was um, at the commissary, who was a musician, I think it was Neil F.D. or Mardell, though I forget. And the uh, the guitar player. He was a guitar player. He used to work with me when I had my trio. Mm -hmm. And then I noticed as he was walking, he walked in that same temple that he was singing these English musicals. And I said, well, what are you fighting it for? And that afternoon I wrote, in that temple, pass me by. He didn't sing it in the picture, but we got some Australian fellow. Eventually, Cary Grant did record his only 45 record, written by Cy Coleman and Peggy Lee, a schlock song called Christmas Lullaby. What is it with all these non-singers doing Cy Coleman songs? Cy Coleman's second great collaborator was Dorothy Fields, the daughter of Lou Fields, who was half of the late 19th century's most celebrated vaudeville team, Weber and Fields. She wrote the libretto of many great musicals, like Annie Get Your Gun and 
three Cole Porter shows. As a lyricist, even before teaming with Coleman, she wrote songs like The Way You Look Tonight, I Can't Give You Anything But Love, On the Sunny Side of the Street, and I'm in the Mood for Love, which many of us remember Alfalfa singing. Her first show with Cy was Sweet Charity, the 1966 musical about a Times Square taxi dancer who finally falls for a shy tax accountant. With musical numbers like Big Spender and If My Friends Could See Me Now, Dorothy Fields died in 1974, leaving Cy Coleman to lean toward edgier material. And as we're talking here, The Life was running on Broadway. We covered Cy Coleman's last great musical, The Life, in last season's Tales of Times Square, The Tapes, episode 14. The world-renowned hookers and pimps and filth of 42nd Street. All singing, all dancing. And this was immediately after the city eliminated pornography from Times Square. I was in the office with Cy and librettist David Newman, and yes, they did use my book, Tales of Times Square, as background material, but only as background source. What they created was entirely genuine and original. In the mid-90s, when Times Square had cleaned up, Cy proposed the first show for the clean new Times Square to the 42nd Street Association. We're going to diversify. We're going to have a dance school, then we're going to have a children's center, we're going to have all this... And, and, she, and I said, that was going to bring a lot of people to, to 42nd Street. I said, well, if you're worried about getting a lot of people here, i got a great idea for you. And they said, what is it? And I said, pornography. <laughs> of course, I was curious to know just what was Sai's experience on 42nd Street. About your own experience going to just back in, in those days. In the 70s, I My experience in that, and not to tell you the truth, was just, um, with, there was no experience, really, except for the fact that I'm from New York, I knew what it was, I walked down the street. Well, I once went to, I, I once, you know, it was a Christmas, yeah. and I a friend of mine, and there was a, a woman, and we said, you know, we'd never seen a sex show. We decided all of a sudden to go see a live sex show, and we went to Showgirl. And that was it, but that was, that was the whole experience. I wouldn't be shocked if he was there every day discussing Picasso, Nietzsche, and jazz from the coin slot end of a peep show booth. Here's Cy himself doing a number from The Life. I looked up at the sky and I said, ain't the weather fine? Ain't a cloud in sight. It's a lovely day to be out of jail. how that sun do shine? Like a golden light. What a lovely day to be out of jail You won't see me frown When the sun's out of sight Here with David Newman, we talk about a famous chair in Sai's office. Who's imprint is in Everybody's ass you could think of. Everybody's ass you could think of. Jerome Robbins, Bob Fosse, Practically everybody in the theater. Comes to add or agree. Uh, which women have sat in it then? Which women? More impressionable. Which women? Everybody. Well, this was a professional Ethel chair. Ethel Merman has sat in that chair. Ethel Merman. Dorothy Fields sat in that chair. Uh, Ethel Merman never came up to the office. Liza Minnelli sat in Liza Minnelli sat in that chair. Um, even Judy Garland and Tony Bennett. Sat there you in go. In that very chair. Yeah. Well, the show's a masterpiece. Oh, okay. uh, it is the guys and dolls of today. I don't mean, maybe that's an insult. No, that doesn't sound like an insult to me. No, 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 no. I mean, the only person in the uh, whole theater who left was this lady next to me. Uh-huh. She was uh, squirming through the whole first act, and, you know, she really should have seen um, Julianne, Mary Poppins or something. Right. Yeah. Everybody else there was, was um, 
Well, no, those kind of people remind me that when we had when we did little me years ago, and Neil Simon was standing in the back, and I don't remember it was New York or Philadelphia, we were previewing, and this guy came up in the middle of the first act and I up, and he looked at Neil Simon, not knowing who he is, and he said to me, this is the worst thing I've seen since my fair lady. <laughs> Talking about walkouts, Cy mentions City of Angels, his 1989 film noir musical on Broadway. When we did City of Angels in London, yeah. and uh, there were these two kind of like really stuffy English guys, there, you know, they were in their 60s and 70s, they were standing there talking, one of them took the other, they were very stuffy. Well, and then by the crazy few had opened up, uh-huh. and they said, uh, well, how did you like it? I think it's all right, maybe. He says, you know, but it doesn't have anything like, I got rhythm, I got rhythm. <laughs> and he started to sing it just like that. City of Angels had a crime jazz score with intricate vocal harmonies. Somehow it was performed in a junior version at high schools. Especially music kids. We'll go for the challenges. And evidently, I didn't see it, but somebody told me about a, a high school production of the City of Angels that was terrific, and they did all that very difficult, to, you know, scat singing that I wrote down. You know, it wasn't. Have you ever gone to a high school production of one of your shows? Uh, no, no, I try to avoid them, but you know, but the people did. And they said then these people who I respect, I wasn't their daughter singing up there. So, do you think the life could be done in a high school or a cop? Certainly in college sometimes. College, yes, in college. But, uh, you know, in high school, possibly. they'd have to be a very enlightened school. Yes. Listen, everything was uh, had its own time. For example, West Side Story had a lot of flack. Poor Me and Best I Read had a lot of flack. It was about drugs and so forth. They didn't want to do it. Now it's a classic. I think if they're around long enough, then they last, they become classics, and then people pick them up as classics. If this were done 20 years ago on Broadway, it wouldn't have been done. Could have been done. Well, it was happening right outside the theater. Well, you couldn't do that. You couldn't do Sweet Charity that way. Sweet Charity, Sweet Charity was uh, the film based on the film Nights of Cagliari, which was about hookers in, in Italy. But hookers in Italy, in the street in Rome, standing in the park, yelling out things to the other, yelling out insults to the guys that are walking by, was quite different than in New York, which was a much tougher and a harder scene. We did um, Sweet Charity in 1965. The original one of that. Yeah. But I mean, the life is still 20 years after the after the uh, terrain was dominated by those. Well, that's right, characters. exactly. And some people might have thought that's even a little early. Well, too soon enough for me. Yeah. I felt like I got a little bit of my old Times Square back with the life. It was Cy Coleman's last great musical. He passed away at age 75 in 2004. <laughs> This is Josh Allen Friedman with Tales of My Head Heroes. Visit our website at blackcracker.fm for music links and photos. I'll see you next time. Strike a match. Let me see.